I want you to think about this question. Who has been kind to you this week? And what impact has that had on your week? I want you to really think about it. Call things to your mind. Uh, What have you been given that you didn't expect or didn't deserve? Who has gone out of their way, above and beyond the call of duty, to care for you? My guess is that just about everybody here can think of at least one thing this week. And the very fact that you remember it shows that it was actually kind of important to your life. It made your day better, your hour better at least, maybe even your week better. If you were here last week and survived the sermon, really horrific passage, you'll remember the woman who had really no acts of kindness to her in her life at all. Her story stands out for that reason as being so tragic that no one was kind to her. But really, that's, I think, the exception that proves the rule. In general, we all experience the kindness of others. We all have someone at some point in our our lives who is kind to us. So, for instance, inside the concentration camp, the, the people who were there even spoke of the good guards, those who would actually smuggle them food, care about their welfare. There were acts of kindness, even in that horrible pit of evil. Or the story of Solomon Northump, a free U.S. citizen who's kidnapped and sold into slavery in the South. His story is one, you know, the, the movie, 12 Years as a Slave. It's a, intense brutality, intense evil and suffering. But there's also signs of kindness. He is treated kindly by various people, which is a huge help to him. Friends, we live in a fallen world. And therefore, even in people's most loving acts, there are stains of corruption. And yet we also live in a world of God's common grace. And therefore, even in the darkest pits of evil, there are glimmers of kindness. And praise God for that. And friends, as, as we've already talked about, kindness is important to us just in our normal everyday life. We live by other people's kindness. It makes our day better. It gives us maybe a spring in our step. It helps us out. Kindness keeps us from descending into bitterness and frustration. But I want you to imagine a situation that's not just normal, everyday life. I want you to imagine you are completely helpless. You have no income. You have no means of getting an income. You have no food. You have no shelter. You have no family, no friends. You are all alone. And I want you to imagine that that's the state in which you live. Now, answer this question. How important is kindness to you then? Your very existence depends upon it. If people aren't kind to you, you die. Well, friends, that's exactly the situation that a woman finds herself in in the passage for this morning. And I won't keep you in suspense. She does find kindness. This story is the book of Ruth. And Ruth is a small book found just after Judges. It's on your Bibles in the pew. It's on page 222. But before we get to the story, since we're starting a new book, let me introduce it and tell you how we should think of this book. The very first sentence in the book locates the story. It says, in the days the judges ruled. Now, if you were here with us for our series on judges, you'll see that that will help you realize that the book of Ruth occurs at the same time as the book of Judges. And therefore, the stories are linked. There's other things that link the stories as well. If you are here with us again for a series of Judges, you'll remember that at the end of the book of Judges, after all the Judges have sort of run their course, we get two stories about ordinary people. One was Micah and the Levite, remember, with the idols? 
That story seemed, at least in my mind, insanely boring, and that tells us how evil is not just wicked and cruel, but it also is just boring because we get this preoccupation with ourselves that just destroys our lives. That's what that story told us. And then we had the next story, ordinary people, the Levite and the concubine, and that story was terribly brutal. These two stories are about ordinary people, and if you were paying attention, you might have realized that both of them take place in and around Bethlehem. Now we have the book of Ruth, and guess where that takes place? Bethlehem. And it's also a story about ordinary people. So we have all these links between the book of Ruth and the book of Judges. Now you might say, okay, but why does that matter? Maybe if this is a, you know, we're doing a class on biblical literature, it might matter, but why does that matter for us? Well, I'll tell you why it matters. I don't know about you, but I found the book of Judges difficult to go through. I got worse as we went along. It was hard to to think about that and to preach about those things. But if Ruth is really kind of the end of Judges, if it's supposed to be together with that story, it means that the story doesn't end on a note of horrific brutality. It ends on a note of kindness. It's the happy ending to Judges. It's supposed to be connected to it so that at the end of the book, We don't end in despair. Everyone's just doing what is right in their own eyes. No, we end on a note of hope. That, hey, God is doing something. He is at work in people's lives, and therefore we can hope. So so the book of Ruth is, I believe, the happy ending to the book of Judges. And that's why we're looking at it together as a unit. But in order for us to understand the happy ending... Oh, and by the way, we're going to look at the book of Ruth in four Sundays. So we're going to look at the first three chapters in the next three weeks... Skip for a little bit and then uh, look at the chapter number four. So we'll be, in Judge, we'll be in Ruth for four weeks and I think we'll enjoy the story. But before we get to that, the happy parts, we do have to deal with some suffering in the book. That's why we read a psalm about suffering and sang a song about suffering. Because this book begins, the, the curtain opens and the, the drama on stage is one of suffering. We have to realize what that suffering is so then we can start seeing how it plays out in the happy sections later on. So let me read Judges chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And if you're new to the Bible, the the big number is the chapter number, and the little number is the verse number. So Judges chapter 1, verse 1, going to verse 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, And the name of the wife was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elemicah, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Friends, ten years of pain is packed into those five verses. And we get just the facts, don't we? Nothing about how they felt, what conversations they had. It's just the raw facts of her life. But those facts are enough to tell us that Naomi is in a really bad place and she is all alone. The Hebrew has a bit more colorful way of describing this than you get in just the plain English. 
In English, it says here, she is left alone. It says that twice. Verse 3, she's left alone with her sons. And then verse 5, she is left alone without even her sons. In English, though, the word left, is it's the verb. It's what happens to her. Hebrew is a little bit different. It says she is left over. She, left is it just the experience. Left is her identity. It describes who she is. You, you could even translate that. She is the remainder. She is the leftover. Now, you might laugh, but when I realized you could translate this, word, translate this word remainder, I immediately thought of those long division problems I did as a kid. You know, did you, you do those too? And, and you take the, the, the number on the outside and figure out how many groups you can make of that number with the number on the inside. And then what doesn't fit in there is the remainder. It's left over. It doesn't fit into a group. Friends, Naomi is the remainder because she is what is left over. She doesn't fit in any group. She's without a husband, without sons, a woman living in a foreign country. She's alone and left over. It didn't start out that way. She started out doing great. She had a husband and sons. And and probably there, there might have been some wealth in the family because they were able to escape Bethlehem to go out of the city during the famine. Today's world, that might be like marrying young and buying your first house young and saving for retirement. You know, she's got everything in the bank. It's going good for her. And then it's all taken away, and she's left alone. Friends, I wonder if you've ever felt that way, all alone. Everyone else is finding a spouse and getting married, and you're not. Everyone else gets a job, but you don't get a job. Everyone else seems to have their place in the church and amongst their group of friends, but you're not really sure which place you have. And when things sort of divide up and fall into groups, you're left alone. Ever feel that way? Well, friends, if you do, you want to pay particularly close attention to this story. Naomi feels this way. And for her, though, it doesn't just mean social awkwardness and nothing to do on a Friday or Saturday night. No, for her, it means she will starve to death. She will die. To be left over is to die back then, unless somebody is kind to you. So let's see what happens, starting at verse 6. And we'll read till the end of the chapter. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will not return. I'm sorry, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your own way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this very night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Beautiful story, isn't it? Here we get not just the raw facts thrown at us. Here we start to get conversations. We get to see how these characters feel, how they interact. The emotion comes out. Emotion comes really far out too, right? It's a highly emotional passage. And I think the biggest emotional thing we see here is that Naomi feels cursed and stricken by God. The word Naomi, the name Naomi, means pleasant, good, beautiful. And she says, don't call me Naomi. That's not how I feel. Call me Mara. And Mara means bitter. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And she calls God's name Almighty, which is a name that emphasizes God's strength and power, not his compassion or mercy. To her, God is just a really strong guy upstairs in the sky who's going to squash her. And the more mighty God seems to her, the more terrifying he is because she feels that God is against her. She says that God is testifying against her. That's legal language. She sees herself on trial, and God is the prosecutor's star witness. And that witness is successful. Verse 13 sums it all up. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. See, that's the heart of the reason why she wants her daughters-in-law to return back to their own families. When you first read this passage, you might think, why does she want her daughters-in-law to go back so much? They seem like great people. Wouldn't it be good for her to be with them? Well, it would be good for her, but it wouldn't be good for them, she believes, because she thinks that God has cursed her, and everything she touches, all the people she loves die, so she figures it's only a matter of time for until they die if they stay with her, so she sends them back to their own land. She doesn't want... She, she sees herself as a sinking ship, and she doesn't want them to go down with her. Now, friends, I wonder what you think about her outlook on all this. Is she right to think of God this way? Now, let me give you the ending. I'll give you the answer. In, in, in a major way, no. This book is really a critique of that perspective. But before we get to what she gets wrong, we have to see that there's a part that she gets absolutely right. Let me show that to you. It's actually true that people all throughout the Bible say hard things to God when they encounter difficulties. The passage that Israel read uh, talked about a a person who was suffering terribly, called out to God and said, I'm calling out to you, God. Why aren't you answering me? Charging God with being negligent, even. Jeremiah is called the complaining prophet. 
he, he complains to God several times in his book. He says, Lord, you have deceived me. The psalmists call out, have I obeyed for this? Looking at their lot in life. Habakkuk is very angry at God because of the nation that God has raised up to be against them. People in the Bible complain to God all the time. And even though the Bible critiques that perspective in some ways, it says they are absolutely right on for seeing God as the one who is in control of all their circumstances. You see, we have to understand that Naomi is right in that she sees God as the one who has given her this lot in life. Naomi understands that God is the one who has, who has called uh, her husband and sons away. God did that. She sees that God is the one who is responsible for her situation in life. And therefore, from one perspective, it might make sense that she would charge God with being unfair and say that God is against her. As a pastor, I would much rather have a church member come up to me and say, I am very angry at God for making this happen in my life, than I would for a church member to say, my life is horrible and I just expect it to be this way. See, the second is really complete unbelief. Because it doesn't see that God pertains to our suffering at all. The Christian ought to see that God is responsible for whatever we go through. Several years ago, uh, many, many years ago, really, I was in high school and went to a Christian youth conference. And I was, was talking to this person and was going through a very, very difficult time. And she talked about what God was doing in her life. But then at the end, she kind of said, well, it's just that life stinks and then you die. I remember thinking, what happened to your Christian belief? Friends, we must realize that God has something to do, has everything to do with the circumstances we find ourselves in. Think about it. God decided when you would be born and who you would be born to. God decided what genetic makeup you would have. God decided what trials would come into your life. God decided how and when and if the gospel would come to you. Now, friends, please don't think for a minute that gets you off the hook at all for responding to God rightly. We are charged to respond to God with faith and repentance and obedience. We must do that. But if God is God, then by definition, that means he's in control. He's the one who's responsible for how this world is and what happens in one sense. And we must acknowledge that. We, we acknowledge that implicitly whenever we say things like, well, God has a plan. Do we believe that God has a plan? Well, if we believe that God has a plan and we trust him at all, it's because we think he's in control. And therefore, we must acknowledge that he is in control. Friends, I wonder if you believe that. See, perhaps if you've never complained to God about your circumstances, it's because your God is actually a whole lot smaller than Naomi's God. Perhaps you don't complain to God about your circumstances because you see God as having no more control over your circumstances than the Easter Bunny. You don't complain to him, right? You don't complain to God because you don't see that he's, he has anything to do with what's happened in your life. Friends, do you believe in a God who Naomi does that is actually in control and can change things and gets involved? Or do you believe in a God that's just up in heaven wishing and hoping but powerless to actually do anything? Now, we've seen that, that there is something right about what Naomi believes, but is her perspective true? Is it off in some other way? Well, I think it is. The real drama that's going on here centers around the interaction between Naomi and her daughters-in-law. That, that, that drama as they interact is the main action here. Let's take a look at that interaction. First of all, we have to realize that the daughters-in-law are exceptionally kind. It is their kindness that makes 
Naomi think that they're probably going to put up a fight before they actually go, go away. Uh, she says, may the Lord treat you according to the kindness you have showed me and the dead. Ruth and Orpah, the daughters-in-law of Naomi, have been very, very kind to their mother-in-law and very, very kind to their husbands. Maybe they took care of them as they were sick and dying. And one of the daughters does go back. And it must have been a, a painful goodbye, right? As these women are very close And she goes back, and there's no flying back to that country later on. There's no Facebook. There's no instant message. No, they probably will never see her again. Just as a side, it reminded me of the fact that I've known some tearful goodbyes in my life. Going to another part of the world and then flying back, knowing I'll never see the people on the other part of the world again. And I, for one, am looking forward to heaven, where there will be no final goodbyes. We may travel around. We won't be omnipresent like God is. We may go here and there. But we will always see one another again. Praise God for that. But Ruth uh, will not say goodbye to her mother-in-law. And then we get one of the beautiful, most beautiful sections in the whole Bible. She says to Naomi, her mother-in-law, Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. That's a beautiful passage. It's one that you might expect to hear at a wedding. But it's always taken out of context in a wedding unless it's said by the bride to her mother-in-law. Right? How many recent brides here would dream of saying that to their mother-in-law? Probably not, right? And that just underscores how exceptionally kind this is. She's not bound to make this oath to Naomi. She's doing this out of her own free will. She's saying, I want to be with you. I want to cast my lot with yours. I want to be joined to you. Friends, that's kindness. Kindness in the Bible is faithful, loyal love. It's covenantal love. It's, I want to be with you. I want to pursue your good, so I cast my lot with yours. I don't need to be bound to you, but I will bind myself to you and commit to pursue your good regardless. That's kindness in the Bible. Now, how do you think Naomi will feel having received that kindness from Ruth? You might think she'd feel really good about it, right? Someone who's all alone. She gets this incredible act of kindness, but she doesn't. Notice here in verse 21, she comes back to Bethlehem, okay? Makes the journey from Moab to Bethlehem. That's a 50-mile journey. She went with Ruth walking together. Probably took about a week or so. Made that journey. And then she gets to Bethlehem and she says, I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. Empty? Really? What about Ruth standing right by her side? What about that companion who swore to go with her? One pastor, I I listened to his sermon, he he said it's sort of like this. Naomi's sobbing, I'm all alone. Ruth, will you pass the Kleenexes? What's Ruth doing there? Why isn't she appreciating her? See, what's going on here is she thinks lightly of the kindness of Ruth because the only way that Naomi can imagine God being kind to her is if God gives her a son, and Ruth is not a son, therefore she doesn't count. That's what's going on here. But rather than keep you in suspense, let me just tell you how the book ends. We'll have a lot more to fill in the gaps over the next three weeks. But here's how it ends. Ruth ends up marrying into her father-in-law's family. And that means, and we'll explain how and why over the next few weeks, but that means that Ruth's 
son is considered the grandson of Naomi. So Naomi ends up with a grandson that she never thought she would have. Once her sons die, she thinks, and she's older, she thinks, I'll never get married again, so I will have no more children. And that depresses her beyond degree. And yet, through Ruth, she ends up with descendants. She ends up with a line. At the very end of chapter 4, we read, The women say to Naomi, Your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is worth more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. I think there's a hint of rebuke in that, that the women are rebuking Naomi, because this is, these are the same women, and this is the same Naomi, who we see in chapter 1, Naomi shows up, I'm uh, empty, I'm all alone. And they're saying, the Lord has given you a son through this woman who loves you. See, the problem with Naomi's perspective was not that she saw God as the author of her circumstances. The problem was that she thought she could judge those circumstances according to her own standard and judge God as being good or not good based on her circumstances. Friends, please hear this. We must never judge God's kindness by our circumstances. We must judge our circumstances by God's kindness. We must never judge God's kindness by the circumstances. We must judge our circumstances by God's kindness. And this is what it means. It means that we look at what's going on in our life and we don't say, oh, is it good or bad, and then decide whether or not God is good or bad. Rather, we should know for sure that God is kind and that if we are in Christ, God is working out all of history for our good. And therefore, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we should know that God is doing something good out of it. We, we sung the song by William Cooper, and let me just read you a couple of the verses. I'll read it slowly. Think about each word here. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Friends, Cooper, a man whose life was actually marked by suffering, pleads with us not to think we know the end of the story. Don't think that we have the ability, the right, even, to look at our circumstances and judge what God is up to. Oh, I know God is doing this because of this happened. Rather, trust him for his grace. Let God be the interpreter. And behind the circumstances that may feel so painful and sad is God's smiling face. He is doing something good out of them. Friends, do you think there are times in your life where you don't recognize the kindness of God in one area of your life because you're particularly fixated at another area of your life and you say, if God is kind, he will do X? And because God hasn't done X, therefore you think he's not kind? And therefore you miss all these other things that God may be doing in and through your life? Friends, let me just mention one area that we as a church should be uh, careful about. I think it's tempting for churches to judge God's kindness based upon the number of people who show up and and how the the budget is doing. 
Now, don't get me wrong. We want our building full. We want our members to be regularly assembling together as they're commanded by God and Scripture to do. So, so we want our members to be here, and we want visitors to come and hear the gospel and be converted. We, we like that. And we like the budget that meets and, and goes beyond so we can do things for the work of the gospel. Those things are important. But if we think that that's the only way that's going to be the measure of God's kindness, then, friends, we are, we are missing so much other thing, many other things that God could do or will do. We'll miss those Sundays where, for whatever reason, not that many people show up, and yet there is great fellowship after the service. Or will there be things that happen totally uh, not on the church's radar screen that we never see, acts of kindness between members and people sharing the gospel that can't be measured. Hence, God's kindness to us as a church is in all sorts of ways. And rather, what we should do is trust that what God says is true, that when his word is preached and his people come together, he is doing something. We should measure God's kindness based upon that. What about your own personal life? Are there prayer requests that haven't been answered, and you judge God unkind because he hasn't answered them? Well, friends, the book of Ruth teaches us not to pass judgment on God too quickly. God may still do the very thing you want, or he may have an entirely different plan in mind for you, which is good, and it is good for you in a way that you can't even conceive of now. Friends, the very essence of what it means to be a believer in God is to rest in his plan, not your own. And the very essence of what it means to be an unbeliever is to think that your plan is better than God's plan. So, friends, are you a believer or an unbeliever? Are you resting in God or not? Solomon tells us in the book of Proverbs, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And we have to realize that God's view of straight may be different than our view of straight, because we look at things from a fallen world, it will always look crooked. Yet what God is doing is something beautiful. Yesterday, I went to the National Gallery in D.C. with a friend of mine, and, and he helped me appreciate the Impressionists in a way that I haven't done before. We looked at one work by Monet, and it's amazing. You get up close... And, and you just see, you know, uh, you see paint brush strokes and you just see dots and it doesn't look like anything. And then you look at it from further back and it looks like a beautiful picture. And I was thinking, oh, that reminds me of what God's doing here in the book of Ruth. How God is actually making a beautiful picture out of something if you stand back and see it. But... At the moment, all you see are these strokes. You don't see what's going on in the whole thing. And, and as I looked at the picture, I was struck by how, how incredible uh, the artist must be to be able to imagine the big picture from the very outset and make those strokes knowing what's going to happen. That, that's skill. That's why that picture's hanging up in the National Gallery, and nothing I ever done is, is ever doing that. Right? Friends, God is a much better artist than even Monet. And he is bringing something beautiful out of our trials, out of our frustrations, out of our difficulties. If we're a believer in Christ, he is weaving together, creating a picture that is out of our lives that is beautiful. Now, what I think is most amazing out of this passage is that Naomi doesn't even begin to, to scratch the surface on how good God is in what he's doing with Ruth. Naomi thinks, God is good because I get a grandson. But, but then at the end of the book, we see that this grandson is tied into something so much bigger than Naomi's life. 
because the, the, the child, Obed, grows up and is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, and David is the king. And remember what the problem is in the book of, of Judges. There's no king in Israel, so everyone does what is right in their own eyes. The nation has slid down into utter uh, disregard for God, and, and they're deplorable. But the king comes, the good king, David, comes, and he actually sets the, gener- sets the nation back on its feet in a good trajectory that will influence it for generations to come. But that's not the only good that God is doing through Ruth. We also read in uh, Isaiah and then later in the book of Romans, the root of Jesse will spring up one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. So we see Ruth has a baby that will be a blessing to Naomi. But not only will that baby be a blessing to Naomi, it will also be a blessing to the nation of Israel. But not only will it be a, nation, a blessing to the nation of Israel, it will be a blessing to the whole world. The whole world will find in that child hope and rest. That child will be born in Bethlehem as well, will rise up and will be the savior of the world. That is what God is doing. And that child will fix our greatest problem. Remember at the beginning I said how Naomi was in a situation where she needed kindness or she would die. And we often don't feel like we're in that situation because of all these other fallback things that we have. But in actuality, we need kindness for something far worse than the situation Naomi's in. See, the Bible says that we are all created for God, to know Him, to be in a relationship with Him, to live in obedience to Him. But we have, we have failed at that. We have gone away from God. We have severed the link between us and God. We've wanted our independence, but we've wanted our independence from the only being who is the source of goodness, which blocks us off from that. And not only that, because God is good and kind, we deserve a punishment. We deserve God to be against us, really truly against us, for scorning Him. But in His infinite, infinite kindness... He sends Christ, the greater son of Ruth, to die on the cross to take the penalty for everything that we've done wrong if we've trusted in him. Do you see how that act of God's kindness extends so much further than what Ruth could be seen at the time? And not only does Jesus come and die on the cross to take our place, he also pledges himself to us. Remember that that pledge that Ruth said to her mother-in-law. Guess what? Jesus says something similar to us. Jesus says it to us. He says, I will be with you. But it's, it's even stronger than what, Naomi, what, what Ruth says to Naomi because Jesus says, not even death will separate us. We read from Paul, for I am convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor things present nor things to come nor any powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. God is kind to us. Friends, to have somebody here on earth be kind to us could change our hour. It could change our day. It could change our week. It could even change our life. But to have God be kind to us in Christ in the way that he does changes our entire eternity. Because we don't experience the wrath of God that we deserve. We experience his kindness in Christ. It could be that God answers none of your prayer requests except for the one that you pray, Lord, save me because I take refuge in your son. And if God answered just that prayer request, which he promises he will, 
you would have enough of God's kindness to praise him for all of eternity, even if nothing else in your life worked out the way you wanted it to. Friends, do you know that kindness? Friends, if you don't, come to Jesus and cling to him. Recognize that if God is not kind to you, you will die for all of eternity. And yet God is kind to you in Christ. And therefore, if you believe in him and trust in him, you will not die, but you will live. And friends, if we've received that kindness, won't we live like it? You know, when I was, one of the things that I was convicted of as I was preparing this sermon is complaining. We complain a lot, don't we? And I thought of myself then complaining, in my head at least, about all the complaining that I might hear. And I realized, wait a minute, I'm complaining. But friends, if we understand that we're the recipient of this kindness in Christ, then what right do we have to complain about anything? Now, complaining is different than sharing our struggles with somebody who can help. That's different. That's commanded by God, and we should do that. Complaining is where we just want to gripe about what's going on. Think about it. What, do you, what have you spoken to others more about this week? What has come out of your, your mouth more? The, the negative circumstances that you might face or God's kindness to you in Christ? What have you spoken to other people about more this week? But in view of the kindness of Christ, shouldn't that be what you speak most about? Friends, let's be a people who don't complain. It's not because we don't experience the trials of this world like everybody else does. Let's be a people who don't complain because we are so affected by the kindness of Christ that that takes priority over everything else. And let's be a church family that does that together. That way, as we love one another in this way, the world will see the kindness that God has given us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your kindness in Christ. We know that we don't deserve it. We know we don't come to you as your people based on anything else but your kindness to us. Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, be kind to us. Because apart from your kindness, we are, are nothing. We have nothing to stand on. We, we stand upon your kindness. And we thank you for the promise that it is sure and true in Christ Jesus. Thank you for that, Lord. We praise you for your kindness. Your kindness is better than life. Therefore, our lips praise you. And we thank you. We rejoice in you for how kind and gracious and loving you are toward us in Christ. Lord, let us be a people who don't complain. Lord, make us into a people who value your kindness in Christ more than anything else. And that overshadows all the the darkness, all the things that people do against us that are, are difficult is overshadowed by what you have done for us that is good. Lord, let us be that way. Let us think that truly. And Lord, we pray that you would be working in us as a body that new quality of life. Lord, we pray that it would be true of us as, as Jesus prays, that, we would, that people would see our love for one another and know that you, Father, have loved the Son. Lord, help us to be that, that kind to one another in our interactions, that it would reflect your inter-Trinitarian love and your love for us. Lord, make us into that kind of people. And Lord, we have nothing to base that prayer on except for your kindness. In your kindness, we ask that you would do that. We also ask that you would draw people to yourself who don't know you. Lord, call people to see the kindness of Christ. Lord, make it in their hearts that instead of maybe being indifferent towards Christ or hating Christ, they would see Christ as 
so exceptionally kind. And see you, Father, as kind in sending Christ, in Christ's grace and love for us, that we would respond, they would respond in faith and repentance, trusting in you as their only hope. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.